here we go. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is the only time we have Jesus referring to the church. And yet it's an extraordinary thing he says. Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's a passage over which people have fought. And because they've fought and they've moved into camps, they haven't listened to it. Jesus says, I, that is Jesus, will build my church. And he goes on immediately to talk of this in terms of forgiveness of sins. Whoever sins you bind will be bound. Whoever sins you forgive will forgive. Well, we're looking at guidance. And again, just to remind you of the guidance we're looking for Christians, because tonight we're going to be looking at the church, and the church is really for Christians. Though, If you're not a Christian, I hope you'll listen in to understand what the church is about, because it will help you when you become a Christian and join up with one. It's not as controversial as the two that are coming tomorrow night, marriage and Wednesday, Thursday night work, and they are much more controversial talks, and so I thought we'd just settle into a routine on tonight's easier one of the church, although it's controversial enough. Let me just rehearse the principles again of what I'm saying about guidance. That is, the Bible is sufficient for all you need to know to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and that there's much more in the scriptures than you may think at first glance. You think, well, it's not relating to it, but it does relate to a whole range of subjects. For every matter that matters is there. And anything that's not there, it's not there because it doesn't matter. So in the subject of guidance, there are matters that don't matter because the scriptures don't have them. And there are then the matters that do matter because the scriptures do have them. And you need to be working out, well, if it doesn't matter, well, it doesn't matter. Just flip a coin, do whatever you like to do. But if it is in the scriptures, it does matter. And then you really actually need to be doing what God says to do and to do it his way. As we came last night, I reminded you of the great mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a tack on mission at the end of Matthew's gospel. It's all there through the scriptures. That is from creation to the new creation. If you remember that God from the creation to the new creation made the world for the Lord Jesus Christ and the new creation, he is the head of that as well for he is the firstborn of this world and the world to come. The firstborn of life and resurrection from the dead. He is the Lord of all. And within this great schema of the scriptures from creation through to the new creation, there is the account of how God brings his son into the world by the selection and the choice of Abraham and how history develops the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham under David and Solomon and then the prophets explain why it's all falling away until you come to Jesus when there's this quantum leap and the kingdom of heaven suddenly arrives in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it is all Christ-centred. 
With the death and resurrection of Jesus, we then move into AD, the year of the Lord. And that's the period we're in. We're in the 2,000 year period after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in this period, what's it about? It's about sending out the messengers to the ends of the world to bring all nations into the kingdom of God, to bring repentance and forgiveness of sins. Look back here at Matthew 16. I will build my church, and verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. The role you are going to have in the period known as AD, the role you're going to have is the preaching of repentance and forgiveness, bringing the repentance and forgiveness to people. But somehow it's also caught up with the fact that Jesus aims to build his church. Now, what is this church and why is he building it? And what do we do about church and where do we go to church? And how do you find the right church? Well, as somebody said to me today, changing church is really difficult. It's really hard. If you're growing up in one church and you know that church and everybody knows you, you know everybody... To move to another church, is it, it, breaking into a new church can be really difficult. Nobody knows you. Nobody welcomes you. You, you, you. you stand around waiting for somebody to be polite to you and friendly to you. And you always thought your church was friendly. You didn't know how unfriendly you were to visitors because you weren't a visitor. You'd always been there. But now you're a visitor and you find out the church isn't as friendly as it would be. And when you do start talking to people, they turn away from you because they don't know you. And and do I join a group or don't I join a group? And they, they don't preach the same way and the music sounds different and I don't feel comfortable here. And so how do I find the church? So what I do is I go church shopping. And once you hear the word church shopping, all your heresy bells should be ringing in your head because that's consumerist language, isn't it? You are being a consumer. What do you expect from church? You see, the consumer expects that the shop will be there, the goods will be there, the people to serve me will be there, and when I go in, the customer is always right. And so I go in and I demand what I want and I try on what I want and I leave behind what I don't want and I am king in the shop. Is that what I'm supposed to be in church? Is church provided for me? People there to serve me and to look after me and my interests and what I'm about? My friends, church, like everything in life, it's not about you, stupid. <laughs> it's not what it's about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is building his church, not your church, his church. That's the one he's building. And how do you find his church and your place in his church? And when should you leave a church? Because it's not his church. And is there another reason for leaving his church? And is every church his church or only Anglican churches his church? Because God is an Englishman. <laughs> yes. I thought that's what it was worth too. 
I feel this, this uh, speaker system's a little loud. Is it a little loud for you? Because I'm, I'm semi-whispering up here, and if you dropped it a little bit, I could shout better, which is always good for a preacher, especially when he has a weak point. That's what you write in your margin, shout loud, weak point. Thank you. So, what is church? That's the first big topic we're going to look at, and then why church? So, what is church? Well, we all know what church is because, now it's a little too soft, we all know what church is because society tells us what church is. As you drive around the streets, there's a church. There's a funny building over there and you say to your parents, what's that? And they say, that's a church. And you say, oh, a church is a building. And then one Sunday morning you're driving past and there's all these people going in there and, they, and you say, what are they doing? And they're going to church. So church is a building you go to on a Sunday morning, wearing strange clothes. And so you have an idea of church. Now, if you grew up in a country where there was no churches, then the very notion of what is a church would be a different kind of question. We, in here in Australia, you've got lots and lots of churches, and so people have a sense of, I know what a church is. Furthermore, then the media keeps talking about the church, but whenever they talk about the church, they talk about the church. That is State and church. State and church are to be separate. Church is kind of an authority institution, like kind of parliament is an authority institution. Only we've got to keep the two things separate from each other, and especially bury the church one. But there is a thing called the church, which is an institution, an organisation, uh, some kind of denomination. In fact, some churches call themselves a denomination. The Catholic church, the Orthodox church, the, the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, these are all churches, but they're, well, they're not buildings and they're not places where people go on a Sunday morning. So what, what is this word church about? Our society tells us, but it doesn't tell us. Those of us who have grown up in a family that goes to church and takes us to church, well, they, of course, demonstrate to us what a church is because there it is. What are we doing today? We're going to church. So I go along and now I know what church is because I've been taken to go to church. I know what the word means because I've experienced it. That is, we all know from experience what church is, but that's a lousy place to learn what church is. Because the church we go to or the church we see or the church we hear about in the media may not be the church that Jesus Christ has built. What is the church that he was building and is building? And why would I think my church is the church? You see, one of our problems in church is we think from our experience that we know what a church is, but worse than that, we think we know what a church should be. Because the family church that I go to, they did this, 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 that's what a church should be. So when I leave that church and I join another church, well, it's no good because they don't do what we used to do. And we think that what we did in the church we grew up in is the standard and everything is failing from that. Unless, of course, we hated the church in which we grew up in and then we're looking for something better. And when we find that better, we then define church by that which is better. Indeed, sometimes when you have a period of real spiritual growth in a church, when you've been converted in a church, you'll think that is what the church should be and as years roll on and you move on somewhere, you're always looking back to find a church like the church in which I was converted or the church in which I was in my youth group or the church where I did so much or I had so many experiences. And, and 
there are whole lots of Christian spiritual gypsies wandering around looking for that church that was there when they were young and they had such a wonderful experience of that church. There's some, some ministries overseas I know where people have been and have really been blessed by these ministries. They come back to Australia and there's no church just like the one they had the blessing in overseas. And they just go from church to church to church looking for that spiritual high again. But what is the church? You don't learn what the church is from your experience, or rather we do and we shouldn't. Nor, nor is it in the kind of traditions that we have or don't have. So most people have very little sense of history. Uh, and so what it was like when I was a child is what church has always been like. When in fact what it was like when I was a child was... The, cutting edge, new and innovative when I was a child. If I'd gone 30 years earlier, it would have been completely different. But we always think the thing we grew up with was the traditional form of the church, when it mightn't be the traditions at all. A high church, for those of you who have Anglican connections at all, the high church always give out the impression that they're the old church. But the high church movement started in 1833. 1833 is a long time ago, but when you realise the prayer book was written in 1552, 1833, their Johnny comes lately. They've only just arrived on the scene. But if you grew up in a high church church, you would think, well, we're the old old traditional church, when in fact candles and robes that like they wear and certain kind of robes and bowings and scrapings and crossing themselves and and calling ministers by the name father that's all an innovation of the 19th century laid on top of true anglicanism which was laid out in the 16th century so we have all kinds of traditions in church that make church church architecture is this a church I mean, it doesn't, doesn't look like a church. The windows aren't pointy enough and there's not fur de lis on, on the carpets and we haven't got ch- pews, we've got chairs and they're plastic. And so could this be church? Because church buildings have a certain architectural style to them, a certain character to them. Could you have a church that doesn't have a cross on it anywhere? Would it still be a church as a building? And then how we conduct ourselves, what we do. Could you have a church without music? Could you have a church without an offertory? Could you have a church without a sermon? What do you have to have in a church to make it church? What, what are the kind of absolute essential marks of a church to make a church a church? And we all know what we like. But what we like and what pleases us are not necessarily how we should choose a church or how we define a church. I like that church because all the people in there like me, both of them. And (laughs) I like that church because it belongs to kind of my tribe, my denomination. The denominations in Australia are by and large European hangovers. Now, I'm not talking about alcohol, although it's not all that dissimilar. 
If you're a Welshman, then you'd be a Presbyterian, so you'd have a Welsh Presbyterian church. If you're a Scot, you'd be a Presbyterian, so you'd be a, if you come from an English family, you're an Anglican. If you come from a Dutch family, then you're Dutch Reformed. If you come from a German family, you're... you're you, so, depending where your family has come from, you belong to this denomination or that denomination or some other denomination, which bears little resemblance with what you actually believe. And so my adherence to orthodoxy is an adherence to my family tradition of being Greek or being Eastern Mediterranean or my adherence to Roman Catholicism comes from my adherence to the fact that I've, my family's come from Ireland very commonly or from Italy and so that's why I am what I am and that's daft. God is no respecter of nations and no respecter of persons. You shouldn't be what you are because your family comes from where it comes from those of you who come from Asia, often the denomination through which your family became Christians or which you associated with there encourage you to find a similar thing here in Sydney. Not understanding that the label may be the same, but the, the, the product behind the label may be different from one country to another or from one city to another. Anglicanism in Sydney is quite different to Anglicanism in Adelaide. And it's still in the same country, but you will find a very great gulf of practice and understanding behind the same things. Similarly, Baptists in Sydney and New South Wales are quite different to the Baptists of Victoria. And yet you've got the same label on the, on the front of the... Uh, well, then, what is it about? What is church? Let's go back to the Bible and the meanings of the word and the concepts that we're talking of. It's one of those Greek words that Christians do know of a little, called ecclesia, from which we get ecclesiastical, as into English even. The word church meant gathering, meant a meeting, a coming together of people. It's not where the word came from, but you know, words change meaning over time. I always like our old prayer book in the 16th century. The word prevent meant go in front of. And so we've got a prayer in the 16th century prayer book which says, prevent us, O Lord, in all our doings. <laughs> it kind of means something different in the 21st century, doesn't it? And so the word church came from two Greek words, meant, meant calling out. And so you call people out of what they're doing into a gathering. And so then the word over time came to mean the gathering itself rather than calling out from anywhere. Now, how do I know that and how can I show it to you when you don't know Greek? Well, let me show it to you in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Paul is in Ephesus, and when he's in Ephesus preaching the gospel, he puts the silversmiths out of business. The silversmiths were making all kinds of idols for the great temple of Artemis that was there in Ephesus, their patron goddess. But now that lots of people are becoming Christians, the silversmiths don't have any idols to be making and so they're being put out of business and they don't like it. I may say this shows that primitive Christianity was so radically and fundamentally different to 21st century Christianity because in the 21st century, if a lot of people became Christians, why, that would give more business to the silversmiths as they started making crosses and crucifixes and all kinds of fish signs and dove signs and all the rest of the paraphernalia that goes on for Christianity. It would have actually helped Demetrius and his offsiders to have people become Christians because modern Christianity has adopted idolatry. 
What is the sign that a Christian should wear? I'm sorry if you've got one around your neck at the moment, but no one's looking at you. Don't worry about it. You can take it off later. What is the sign that you should that you wear as a Christian? Is it the dove? Is it the fish? Is it the cross? Is it the crucifix? No, Jesus says it is. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We don't put on signs, we put on reality. And the reality we put on is our love for one another. When they see a cross around my neck, they'll say, is that the latest fashion? It's got no, anybody wears crosses, everybody wears, it's just you buy a cross, that tells you nothing. When I love you and you love me, and we can't actually normally be people who connect with each other, when I sacrifice my life for you, when I lay down, and they say, truly, he loves, that. that's the sign of being a Christian. It's not the dove, it's not the cross, none of those kinds of things. So when Paul preaches the gospel... He preaches a gospel that doesn't encourage more religious bric-a-brac. He preaches a gospel that destroys religious bric-a-brac. And so, as a consequence of that, he puts the silversmiths out of business. As a consequence of that, they go around and say, we don't like Paul, you shouldn't like Paul. He's against Artemis. Artemis is our God. We're Ephesians. Ephesians worship Artemis. Artemis, you're our God. We worship you. And so a riot takes place. And this huge, in the local football stadium, well, it's not actually a football stadium, they hadn't learnt rugby yet. And they, you know, <laughs> Greeks, they're never really good at rugby. Um, the Turks, they're not Greeks, they're Ephesus. Um, they're, they're there, and so they have this riot in town. And we read in chapter uh, 19 of Acts, Paul, verse 30, Paul, when Paul wished to go in the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now, some cried out one thing, some for another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them didn't know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander among... Now, my dear friends, the word assembly is the word church. There is the ecclesia. It's undeniably in the Greek at that point. Our translators can't cope with the idea that this was a church. I mean, they're in a theatre. How can you have a church in a theatre? That can't be right. Where's the pointy windows? Where's the fleur-de-lis? Where's the carpet? Where's the organ? Where's the offertory plate? You see, it's a church. Mind you, it's, it's typical of many churches because you'll notice if you read it, now some cried, verse 32, one thing, some another, for the church was in confusion. And most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. Ah, that makes perfect sense if you just put the word church in there that's like most churches I know now the local town clerk calms them all down and says look we've got a riot on our hands here stop it stop it we need to sort this out in the local council meeting and so notice what he says in verse 38 if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone the courts are open and there are proconsuls let them bring charges against one another but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular church. You see, again, the word doesn't make sense. The local council meeting is the regular church? Yes. Because the word just means assembly, gathering, meeting. That's all the word means. Indeed, it goes on again and says it further. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the church. That's the word. 
It's not a religious word. I mean, these weren't religious events. It's got nothing to do with religion. It just means getting together, an assembly, a gathering. Whenever we gather, we are churching. Now, you can gather and watch a football game. That's a football church. You can gather and watch a cricket game. That's a cricket church. You can gather and do Psychology 101. That's a psychology church. But they're all churches. What makes it a Christian church is you've gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for Christian purposes. The fact that everybody at the football is a Christian is an irrelevance. It's still a football church. It just happens to be a football church made up of Christians. But it's when you gather as Christians to do a Christian thing that you are the church. Now, what is that thing? I may say, once in James chapter 2, just to be complete and give you another piece of information, once in James chapter 2, the word church is not used of the church, it's called, in James chapter 2, the synagogue. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine uh, clothing comes into your synagogue, and a poor man in a shobby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one, that is, the synagogue was not the temple. The temple was where you went up to worship God. Only the Jew could go. Only the Jewish man could go really close in. Only the priestly families could go really close to God. Only the high priest could actually get in to talk with God. And on each step of the way, you had to have sacrifices and washings and cleansing and and all kinds of processes because that's where you went to meet God. But any 10 Jewish men could organize a synagogue. And there were thousands of synagogues in the world, in the ancient world, not temples. And you didn't meet God in the synagogue, you met each other in the synagogue as you taught each other the word of God. And that's the word that's used of church in James chapter 2. But it's also, the word church is actually found in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Deuteronomy chapter 9, go back there, You can find it, it's in your Bible, standard Bible, fifth book of the Bible is Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 10. It's an extraordinary little verse, isn't it? And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with his finger and on them were the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the church. There was a day of the church. And that day of the church was when God gathered all his people around Mount Sinai and gave them his word, the Ten Commandments. This is Moses speaking. Horeb is the name of Mount Sinai. It has two names, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Um, Sydney Harbour is Port Jackson. It's the same thing. Uh, There's many names for the same thing. Horeb, Mount Sinai, where God gathered all his people. He'd rescued them. He'd saved them out of Egypt. He gathered them together, and then he gave them his word. And that is called the day of the church. Come across to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse 16, Deuteronomy 18, 16. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the church when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see again the great fire. 
So it's not just the slip of the tongue. There is a thing in the Old Testament called the day of the church. For it was the one time when all God's people were gathered together in one place. And when all God's people were gathered together in one place, what did they gather together to do? Why, to hear the word of God. To be given the covenant word of God. Come back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And you'll see. Deuteronomy 4. Moses then is telling the people about the commandments they've been given as they go into the promised land. The commandments that were given to them back at Sinai because they're about to go into the promised land. And he says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 4, keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've set before you today? Only take care. And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that when they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heat of heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. God gathers his people together to hear his word so that they might know how to live as God's people in God's land. That's what God does. And therefore God says, keep getting your family together and keep teaching your word. This generation and the next generation and the next generation, you've got to keep gathering to hear the word of God so that you will keep remembering how you are to live in the land that you are going in to possess. This, my friends, is the church. This is the very model of what church is about. It comes across into the New Testament, for example, you go across to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Stephen has just denounced the temple and the law, according to the Jews, because he is upholding the gospel like a prophet of old, seeing that the temple is not the way that the reality of the temple has been found in the person of Jesus. And so Stephen gives a long defense for himself. And he discusses Moses in the process of the defense. And he says in verse uh, 36, this man, 
led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation. There's the word church again, this time translated congregation. This is the one who was in the church in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. That is, the church, the model of the church, the example of the church, the, the, the prototype of the church, is God gathering all his people to hear his word out at Mount Sinai. That's what the church was about. Mind you, the New Testament church is slightly different. Come across to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, because we haven't got a mountain to go to. That makes it different. We also don't have a Moses to give us God's word. In fact, we have something better than a Moses to give us God's word. We have God's only son. And the word that Moses gave them was the word of commandments, which condemned them. Whereas we have the words of the gospel, which forgives us. So the church is the same, the idea of gathering together to hear the word of God, but the nature of the message that we hear is different, very different, radically different. Come with me to Hebrews 12, we found it now. And verse 18 gives you a contrast, the next few verses. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet whose voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken, for they couldn't endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. All that's describing Mount Sinai, if you remember. And he says, but you haven't come to that. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight, verse 21, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come. See, verse 18, you have not come. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me just unpack that for you for a little while there. The word church is there. You see that in verse 23. The assembly, the church of the firstborn, the heirs of eternal life, the gathering together of all the heirs of eternal life. That's Christians, friends. The gathering of all Christian people. But notice this church is not one you can touch. This church is a heavenly church. This church is in the heavenly Jerusalem. For we have been raised already to sit with Christ in the heavenly realms, but I won't mention it to you because it's in Ephesians. And there we are all gathered together around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the righteous. And what we have there is Jesus who has a new covenant, a new contract word that speaks a better message than the blood of Abel. Do you remember Abel, Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel? I had a brother, oh, a couple of brothers, but my mother used to always, whenever we were fighting, say Cain and Abel. I didn't know what it meant, but it stopped us. Um, <laughs> Cain, if you remember, killed Abel. 
And God came and said, Cain, where is Abel? And Cain said, I don't know, am I, bri- am I my brother's keeper? Another one of my mother's favourite verses to quote to me. Am I my mother, brother's keeper? And, and of course, he should have been. And God says, I hear his blood from the ground. There's a great hymn which says, Abel's blood cried from vengeance, cried for justice. But the blood of the Lord Jesus doesn't cry for vengeance. The blood of the Lord Jesus doesn't cry for justice. The blood of the Lord Jesus cries for mercy and forgiveness and for pardon. And so the message that we've come to, the words we've come to, the the covenant and contract we've come to, the, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ we've come to is the word of forgiveness and pardon and mercy. And this is the gathering in of all God's people. And so it is the result of evangelism. We go through the period of history, we go through the prophets, and then comes the Lord Jesus Christ who rises from the dead and brings in a new age, a spiritual age, age that will last forever. And we are to enter into that age how? Luke chapter 24, the end of last night. How we enter in is because he sends out his messengers. And he sends out his messengers with the message of the fact of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the call for all nations everywhere to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. That's how we enter into the spiritual age. But as you enter into the spiritual age, so Jesus is building his church. The church is the consequence of evangelism. As the gospel goes out, people are converted. As they're converted, they're gathered in to Christ's church. But Christ's church is in heaven, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God in all power and authority, and where all people who have been born again are also seated with him. So there is a spiritual reality of Christ's church that all Christians are gathered into. And so, why are we going to church here on earth, seeing we are members of the church of heaven? What is the church on earth to do? We live in this period of time, AD, in the year of the Lord. We've been born again to reason up with Christ, to sit with him in the heavenly realms. What are we doing? sitting in church well there's all kinds of common reasons why people give that you go to church but many of the reasons are wrong and you can't really blame the non-christians for not understanding when the christians keep getting it wrong one of the most common ones is that we go to church to worship god In fact, many a church gathering as you meet on a Sunday morning will start off with, we welcome you today to our time of worship. But that's not what you do. That misunderstands church and misunderstands worship. So it's pretty wrong on both ends. We've gathered together, yes, but not to worship. See, the word worship means to give God his worth. Well, us getting together is not giving God his worth. Even putting a decent donation in the offertory plate still won't do it either. What does God require of us but the whole of our lives, not just Sunday morning for a couple of hours or Sunday night when you can't get out of bed on Sunday morning? That our worship is everything in our lives is seen in that very famous passage in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. 
about present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship, presenting your whole self, every part of you. And even that is inadequate worship. But an hour on a Sunday morning or Sunday night cannot be what is meant by worship. Furthermore, there's a whole set of worship words in the Old Testament, but they're all associated with the temple. And the temple is now in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, not with us in church on a Sunday morning in, in lands here. And Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the great altar. Jesus is the great sacrifice. Jesus, we don't actually find the fulfillment of the Old Testament church, uh, Old Testament temple in the church. No, the, the, sorry, we don't find the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, temple in church. We find the Old Testament church fulfilled in the New Testament church. The day when all God's people gathered together to hear his word. That is what church is about and not about worship particularly. Now it's made worse when we associate worship with liturgy and so you only worship God when you have the right architecture and the right solemnity and the right formality and the right kind of words and indeed people conduct church in words that nobody understands uh, from centuries of yesteryear or from languages in which, they, that, in which the people do not understand or they dress in robes and, and have feast days and fast days and even in the Old Testament, God was not impressed by that. Come back to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1. Church is not about this kind of religious activities. Isaiah 1 verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons, Sabbath, and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, God's not in favor of religion. You can have all kinds of feast days and fast days. You can have your Trinity Sunday and you can have your Whit Sunday and your Septuagesima and your Sexagesima. You can have Christmas Day and Easter Day. God is unimpressed by public religiosity, by feast days and fast days. Uh, go across to Amos, a little harder to find Amos, isn't he? Uh, he's just after Hosea, Micah, Amos, before Micah, Amos, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. There's that wonderful passage in chapter 5 which, from which, of course, um, uh, um, the, the uh, great sermon in America at the Washington Monument came from Dr. Martin, Lloyd uh, Martin uh, uh, King, Martin Luther King, where God says in chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God does not want religious exhibitionism. God wants religious reality, changed hearts, changed lives, living in for one another. See, that's why the mark of the Christian is the love we have for one another, not the symbols we have out the front of our church. They generally are a mark of not being Christian, sadly. And so it's the reality we've got to come with. You see, when James talks about religion, in James chapter 1, verse 25 following, it says, If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion is real, authentic, changed life religion. So church is not about worship. It's not about liturgy. It's not, you might say, but are you saying that we don't worship in church? And then, of course, I'm caught because, of course, we worship in church because we worship everywhere. But I breathe everywhere as well. I don't go to church to breathe. But I do breathe in church. Service goes for an hour and a half. If I didn't, I'd be at my funeral. (laughs) You do breathe in church, but you don't go to church to breathe. Well, you worship in church, but you don't go to church to worship because you're doing that all the time everywhere. That's not what the exercise is about. And if you do worship God, you don't worship God by feeling you've got to say certain set prayers in a certain way or sing certain songs or wear certain clothes or sit in particular places. Listen to Jesus when he talks about this in Luke, in Matthew uh, 23. Matthew 23. Go across to there, Matthew 23. First book of the New Testament is Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 23. When Jesus said to the crowds, and then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, chapter 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. That's got to do with their robes that they put on. And they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven." Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest of you shall be a servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That kind of formal church with all the titles and all the paraphernalia that go with it has got very little to do with Christianity. I've got any number of titles that go before my name and after my name, but they don't make me in the slightest Christian. I am at the moment the very reverend. It's an extraordinary title. I went to bed one night, I was just reverent. And in the stroke of midnight, while I was asleep, I became very. (laughs) 
I didn't even notice it happened to me, but when I got up in the morning, I was very reverent, which is extraordinary, isn't it? And I'll retire one day, and when I do, I will cease being very. I'll just go back to being reverent. Most people don't know what reverend is. Most people who revere me never call me reverend, and those who don't revere me generally do call me reverend, like funeral directors. I'll carry your bag for you, reverend. No, I can carry my own bag. Oh, no, reverend, doesn't look good. I know you... The person who doesn't revere me calls me reverend. The person who reveres me would never call me reverend. They'd call me Philip because they know that's my Christian name. It's not my given name. It's not my first name. It's my Christian name, just by the way. But I don't cross out the thing on the forms very often. <laughs> it's embarrassing when you cross out and you misspell the word Christian. So... <laughs> It's not that way. But now, this is all very easy because most of you don't come from the kind of orthodox, Catholic, high church background and so we can easily... Let's move across to where we are. See, worship has not got to do with music either. That's not worship. And yet today, there are churches which they talk about, we've got a worship leader. Who is the worship leader? He's the song leader. Well, how come the song leader is the worship leader? Well, that's the time when we worship, don't we? You know, we hear sermons, we have the Bible read to us, and we have our time of worship. And the time of worship is when we're singing and or dancing. But God says he hates the music. That's not what God wants, necessarily. That's not what singing is about. That's not what praise. Let's have a time of praise. And so you roll up the musos, because we're going to have a time of praise. That's a nonsense haven't understood the meaning of the word praise. The word praise means speak in favour of. That's what it means, to speak in favour of. It's like advertising. I mean, I'll praise Danny. Danny is a terrific man. He's a great soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ who has spent years preaching the gospel in Paris and it's a great joy to have him back because he is such a wonderful brother. I've just praised him. I didn't sing, did I? There were no harps, lyres, uh, there was no drums, there was no shawms, whatever they are. They're in the Bible somewhere, they do things that are musical. None of that went through it. It was praise. I praised him without music. I can praise him with music. Danny is a wonderful man. He is one of the greatest. Was it any more praise when I sang it than when I said it? No. Because the nature and essence of praise is you're speaking in favour of somebody, not that you are doing it to music. The nature of music is organised noise. <laughs> now we organise noise because it has all kinds of good effects upon our emotions. And emotions are wonderful. And also because we can learn as a result of I mean, you, you, you pick up things if you put it to music much faster than if you just say it. And because being emotional creatures as we are, as we praise God with music, so our emotions and our whole being gets caught up in that sense of what we're saying about God, which is a lovely thing, but it is no more praise than if you just stood there and said it. Because praise is praise, and it's no more worship. If you just said it, do I like singing as opposed to, to uh, uh, speaking? Yeah, of course I do. 
I'm not going to say like everybody else, but there are some tone-deaf people who can't stand it, I know. But a couple have just nodded very vigorously at this point, especially the people just beside them. And <laughs> generally, we love music. Music enriches our hearts and our emotions and our life and our feeling, but it is not worship. And it is not praise. That's not what it is. Giving your whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ so that everything you do is to his honour and glory in obedience to him in gratitude, that's worship. Every minute of every day, the way you park your car. I know one church where they kept on parking their cars across people's driveways and the people got sick of it. And so they rang the police and the police came down and booked all the people who were illegally parked during church. And the church council got really uppity and sent off a letter to the police saying how appalling it was. Here are the people gathered together to worship their God and you were going around giving them tickets. Well, you see, they were supposed to be worshipping God when they were parking their cars. And Christians don't park their cars across other people's driveways. Christians don't park their cars illegally against the rules of the government. Because Christians worship God, and God wants us to obey governments and to love our neighbours. Therefore, you shouldn't have parked your car like that, because you weren't worshipping God when you should have been worshipping God, namely when you parked your car. That's when you worship God, as well as when you walked to church as well as when you went in the church, as well as when you came out of the church, as well as when you served a cup of tea at church. It was all the worship of God because everything is the worship of God. Every part of your life is supposed to be. But what about church and evangelism? No, no, we don't run church to evangelise. We run church because of evangelism, not in order to evangelise. It's the gathering of the saved. It's the gathering of Christians. To hear the word of God again, the word that has made them Christians, the word that has saved them in the first place. There was a tradition very common amongst Baptist churches a while ago here in Sydney. I don't think it is there any much these days, but we have a worship service in the morning and a gospel service in the evening. Well, the church was neither. It's neither a worship service nor a gospel service. It's a gathering together of God's people to hear his word. So you're bombing out at both ends. You don't run church in order to evangelize. There's nothing wrong to run a meeting in order to evangelize. Been doing it all our years. We're going to have some gospel meetings on the campuses, aren't we? To have some mission meetings, they're terrific. I've got no problem with it, but it is not the Christian church at that point. It's an evangelistic meeting. Any gathering is a gathering is a church. A football church... An evangelistic church, if you like, but it's not Christian church at that point. Christian church is where Christians get together. Evangelistic meetings require non-Christians to be in attendance. just like to mention that to you so that you can start thinking of who you're going to invite. It's really important that we preach the gospel, and it's quite helpful to preach it communally. But that doesn't make it a church. The Christian church is when Christians gather together. And the reasons we gather together and the reasons behind it all lies in the fact of God's great plans of scattering and judging. This is the Bible's reasons, you see. When God judges people, he scatters them. When he saves people, he gathers them. That is, God makes us for fellowship, for fellowship with him and for fellowship with each other. 
But sin interrupts our fellowship. It interrupts our fellowship with him, cuts us off from him, and cuts us off from each other. The classic is the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. I take it that you know the story well enough for me not to read it for you, but to remind you of it. That the people, all the peoples, were gathered together to build a tower up into heaven so that they could find their way back to God without God. Whereas God comes and sees them and judges and condemns them by scattering them across the earth. And God says, well, men united together, they can do anything, so I will scatter them. And he does it by giving us different languages. Judgment is scattering. But when he wants to gather his people into the promised land, when he saves people, he gathers them together as one nation and brings them under one king in his land. There is the gathering. Later, when the prophets speak and the people of Israel have sinned, they are scattered. The ten northern tribes are scattered across the Assyrian Empire. The two southern scribes are scattered off into Babylon. When God wants to bring salvation, why, he gathers them together again. Come with me to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. It's just a pattern that you'll find all through the Old Testament. Gathering speaks of salvation scattering speaks of judgment Ezekiel 37 there's the valley of the dry bones I'd sing the song for you but you're just out of time that's the only reason I'm not singing it verse 15 after that the word of the Lord came to me Ezekiel 37 verse 15 16 son of man take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people will say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. And when the sticks on which, they, on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land of the mount, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. And they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or, any, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from their, all their black slidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall all walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob when your fathers lived there. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my ser servant shall be their prince forever. And, I shall be an and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and they will set them my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. 
My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be with their God and they shall be my people and then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst forevermore. It's an incredibly important and wonderful prophecy of the Old Testament. See, Ezekiel is going into Babylon. Ezekiel is talking about the decline of Israel. Ezekiel is talking about the, the death and end of everything. And then suddenly he gives this chapter about, by the way, God's going to raise the dead. That's the first half of the chapter. And when he raises the dead, what's he going to do? He's going to gather all his people back into his promised land. And when he gathers all the people back into the promised land, David will be king again. Only David's going to be king forever. And God's people will never again be taken out of the promised land. By the way, folks, you're going into Babylon next week. And there's this kind of dual message the prophets keep on giving. And when Jesus comes, he is that David. And he is the David who brings forgiveness of sins, restoration. And so what does he tell his disciples to do? Go out into the world now and preach forgiveness and bring them in. Bring them in because I am building my church. I am building my gathering. Not the one of Moses out at Mount Sinai, the one in heaven where all God's people are gathered together. And so here is the gathering by the word of forgiveness, gathering by the word of the gospel message. And when we gather together, that's what we do. We gather to hear again the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the great plan of Jesus at the end of his time, you see in Revelation 19, Revelation 19, come right up there at the end, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard, Revelation 19, 6, right at the end of your Bibles, in case you don't know where Revelation is. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with pure linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, in the end, there is a marriage of Christ. That is the marriage of Christ and his church. His church are his people. His people who have been purified and who live their life now growing more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we doing in church? Come to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. What are we doing in church? See, in Hebrews, there's a, something's gone wrong because some people are not going to church. Unbelievable. You've been saved to go to church and you're not turning up. I mean, that's ridiculous. That, that's, that's absurd. It's like buying a ticket to the football and then sitting at home watching it on television. I mean, why'd you buy the ticket? I mean, it's ridiculous. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 26, let us hold fast to the, 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the end point of where we're going to be, finally, ultimately, at the end of the AD period, 
that never ends is in church. That's what Jesus is doing, building a church. I first heard this when I was a young teenager at a Billy Graham crusade back in 1959. And he said, heaven is an eternal church service. And I thought I'd check out the alternative. The chairs that we used to sit in were so uncomfortable, I couldn't imagine being there forever. And the sermons that I used to listen to seemed to go forever already. The idea of being in church forever seemed to be the absolute pits. But you see, I didn't understand what the church was about. The church is gathering God's people back into love and fellowship with one another. Back into that love and fellowship with one another, which sin destroys and breaks up. Back into hearing God's word, meeting with God to hear his word that we might know how to be living. And so what we do on this earth while we wait for that final moment, what we do with one another is to work out how to stir each other up to love and good works because that's how God wants us to live. So that we'll be more and more like Christ. So we meet together to build each other up. So what do we do in church? Well, we hear the word of the cross. That's what we do. We hear the word of forgiveness. We read the scriptures. We hear the whole counsel of God's word. Let me show it to you where. 1 Timothy. Yeah, we'll do 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy first. Then we'll nick to 1 Corinthians. And then we'll just talk about which church you should go to. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Look at 1 Timothy 3. Paul is saying, in chapter 3, verse 14... 3.14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. So this book is written to teach you how to behave in church. And what's Timothy to do? Well, look across to chapter 4, verse 13. 4, verse 13. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Don't neglect the gift that's been given to you to do this kind of work and keep a close watch on yourself and, your teach, and on your teaching, verse 16, and by this you save yourself and your hearers. What happens at your church? How much Bible is read? How much Bible is taught? How much is it a concern to hear what God has to say? Uh, traditionally, Anglicans used to read the Bible, at more, uh, the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and sing psalms at every service. We've got rid of singing psalms, and nowadays lots of Anglican churches only one read one Bible passage. Traditionally, you used to read a whole chapter, at least. These days, people read shorter and shorter Bible readings. In fact, many Anglican churches, the Bible plays almost no part in the actual reading of the service. What we're doing is we're spending an enormous amount of time with the advertisements. You know, the men's breakfast is coming up and the women's afternoon tea is coming and there's a high tea for this group and, and the Sunday school's doing this and we've got to get to the house party. And we go. The advertisement takes longer time than the Bible reading because we're more interested in ourselves than we are in what God has to say to us. And when the preacher preaches... He may or may not refer to the Bible, but he, may or, but he will use it possibly, but does he actually explain what it is saying? And if you actually take in the amount of time we pray together, it is fairly minimal. And so what takes up most of the time in the, the music, by and large, takes up the most of the time. 
Although, according to the prayer book, you only sing one hymn once a Sunday. That's if there's a choir to help you sing it. But today, you can go to church and 45 minutes can be taken up with the music in the one-hour service by which we get in and out quickly. Because now, time itself is not the essence of what matters. You know, a two-hour sermon which is unutterably boring is a two-hour sermon that is a waste, isn't it? I mean, it's not just time. Long sermons are no more godly than short sermons. Uh, it's the quality of the sermon, not the, the length of time that is the key thing. And there's nothing wrong with singing for 45 minutes. But what's the diet of church? What is church for? What are we about? We're about people who have come together as God's people to hear God's word. Now, that's what church is about. That helps you understand which church you should be in and which church you shouldn't be in, doesn't it? But if you don't know what church is about, well, I like this church because the music's so bright, or I like this church because they're such friendly people, or I like this church because the morning tea is so good. In fact, we have people at the cathedral who just come for the morning tea. They live on the streets. Hearing the word of God. So what do we do in church? Look across to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy. You know the verse, don't you, well? Verse 4 to 16 of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, rebuke. See, this is what the man of God does. The man of God tells people God's word. That's what the man of God does. Come across to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14. It's a favourite passage of people who are really um, obsessed on the subject of the charismatic movement. It's, it's a terrible obsession, the charismatic movement, because it has not understood the work of the Holy Spirit at all. And then it imposes it upon their misunderstanding on everybody else. I won't go on explaining the whole of what the charismatic movement is and what the uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 is, but notice how he concludes in chapter 14, verse 26. What then, brothers? 14, 26. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. There is the key element of what you do in church. Whatever you do, let it be edifying. Let it be for building. Building your fellow believer, building the church itself. Christ is building his church through the gifts he's given to us that we must exercise in love for one another as we serve one another in whatever gifts God has given us. But our service of one another must always be for building one another. That is what we are to do. Now, sometimes it doesn't build at all. For example, he says, verse 27, if one is to, anyone is to speak in a tongue, let there be only two, at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. See, it's unedifying. Daddy can come up here and preach in French. It will be a very long lesson for me because I don't speak French. I failed French in the intermediate certificate in 1958. 
Listening to him preach for 20 minutes in French, well, I'll be thinking of lots of things, but it won't be about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it might be, but it won't be about what he says. Right? It's just unedifying. Mind you, if there's someone here to interpret it, well, that could be very edifying, couldn't it? And so that could be very helpful. Mind you, if we had three sermons in different languages with three interpreters, it's very long. It's very tedious. I don't know if you've ever been in a bilingual congregation, but it is really boring. It's tedious. And so he's saying, well, it's not edifying. Don't do it. Two, at the most, three speak in tongues. It's very clear, isn't it? That's not what happens in many Pentecostal churches, of course. And so, when one speaks, the rest are to weigh. What they say, are you weighing what I'm saying? So that's your job at the moment, is to be weighing up what I'm saying. That's what he says here. Because I won't be necessarily speaking the truth. You've got to weigh up what I'm saying. And that's why we have question time down here. Because we can all ask questions, one after another. And we can all speak in due time. And so... The whole purpose of church is to hear the word of God in fellowship with God's people in ways that will encourage and stir each other up to love and to good works because it's in our love and our good works that we worship God. Do you get the drift of what's being said about church? Now, it's in that context that you then start working out, should I change church? Is this a church that's going to edify me? Is this a church where I'm going to be able to edify other people? If it's a church that's not preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it won't edify you and you can't be able to edify other people. Get out. Leave. Do not place yourself under false apostles. Do not be unequally yoked, as it says in 2 Corinthians 6, about living under false teachers. If you can't edify people and you can't be edified by people and the two things go hand in hand, then you're in the wrong church. But if there is a church where the gospel is being taught and people are being faithfully built up in Christ Jesus and you can minister to them in the Lord Jesus Christ, then why are you leaving that one to go down the one around the corner because there are more young people down there or because the service is shorter or because it's brighter or because the building's nicer or because... What, what, what's this about? This is consumerist thinking. This is pagan thinking. I'm here to serve you. You're here to serve me. We're here to serve one another. And our service of one another is to encourage each other to love and good works. How does my walking out of here and going around the corner because there's a, you know, the, the, it's the latest cutting-edge church, how does that help you? I mean, if I should leave this church because there's something inadequate about this church, then I should be saying, I think you should leave also. If I'm not saying you should leave also, then why am I leaving? This chasing around different churches to find the really good church is just immaturity in the extreme. Settle where you are and serve the people of God. They may not be your people, but they're God's people. And if it's good enough for God to have them in his home, how about the humility comes into your heart that you may care to serve them, whoever they may be. So can you ever then leave your church? Well, yeah, there are reasons for leaving your church, aren't there? You, you leave the country town and you go to, to, to study in the university and, well, of course you've left your church. There are reasons for leaving church. You get married, you set up a new home in a new place, there's reasons for leaving church. But many of the reasons that we hear people leaving churches and changing churches today are following fads in fashion 
that have got nothing to do with being Christian. And many people stay in churches that they should have got out years ago because the gospel is not being preached there. And you say, well, but my Sunday school class, yes, your Sunday school class that you're teaching the truth to is just about to be handed over to the youth fellowship leader who is going to lead them astray. That's not the church to teach Sunday school in. You should teach Sunday school where when you hand your Sunday school class over to a youth leader, they're going to teach those children the same truths that you've been teaching and build them up in Christ Jesus. But you've got to understand what a church is, why it meets, in order to start making the right decisions that are needed.